Bibles to Matthew 26, if you have them. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be on page 883 in the Pew Bible. So, this passage is uh, really, really challenging uh, for me, uh, for most of us. And the reason I am challenged by it is because of Iron Man. I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're not the best movies ever, but over the course of 10 years, they've crafted this overarching story with like 23 different films. It's never been done before. It's, I think it's really impressive. And so I wanted to um, introduce these films to my children. So we watched Iron Man last week. And if you're not familiar, Iron Man is the story of billionaire playboy and weapons manufacturer, Tony Stark. He finds out early in the movie that his weapons are being sold to terrorists at different parts of the country. And the weapons that he's and building are being used to hurt innocent people. And so what he does is he makes a suit of armor for himself full of weapons, and he goes out as a vigilante to destroy the terrorists and rid the world of violence. And my problem with Iron Man is that Iron Man and also the rest of the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe teach us that the best way to come against violence is with more violence. The only way to defeat a supervillain is with a superhero. And we watch that movie, and no sooner than we're done, Nora is running around the house going, pew, pew, pew. and I think, oh man, am I a bad parent? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. See, the thing is, though, at first glance, you don't even realize it because it's the water that we swim in in Western culture. We've got a bad guy doing bad things. We need a good guy who can commit acts of violence and kill the bad guy and save us. But this idea, this idea of redemptive violence goes directly against the teachings of Jesus. A long time ago, when we were in Matthew chapter 5, we studied Jesus' teachings on violence in the Sermon on the Mount. And today, in Matthew 26, we're going to see him live out those teachings. And what I believe we learn here and the rest of Scripture is that Jesus teaches us that Christians should forsake violence. Look at verse 47. So while he was still speaking, Jesus and the disciples, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just been praying his heart out, John taught last week, and asking the Lord, do I need to go through with this? Your will be done, not my will. And he says, it's t get up, it's time to go. While he's still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, a large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. 
So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? And they, then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. So we know from the other gospel accounts that the one, the, the follower of Jesus here, it's Peter. Because you know, it's always Peter. Peter's always doing something. Peter cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. The high priest has uh, sent this mob. His servant is probably leading this mob. So it's, it makes sense, you know, let's kill the leader. When I was growing up, I envisioned Peter having some kind of like Zorro move where he like slices the guy's ear off. That's not what's happening here. Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman. He's aiming for this man's head. He's trying to kill him. He's not very good at it. And he cuts off his ear. And it makes sense, right? Jesus is the most important person ever. And he's in danger. The absolute right course of action seems to be to kill the man that's trying to harm my king, my savior. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. Look at verse 52. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. I believe that Jesus teaches us that we should forsake violence because it will come back and destroy us. Jesus says, if your exercise of power is violence, violence will come after you. I want to give you a couple examples of that. In June of last year, there were quite a bit of um, protests going on around the country in, um, for the cause of Black Lives Matter. Many of those protests were peaceful, but many of them turned violent. We saw it on the news all summer long. One of those areas of violence was um, an area of the city of Seattle that was taken over by a mob. They called it the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP. And that mob that violently overthrew a neighborhood and kicked out the police over a number of weeks, the fruit of that was that a 19-year-old young man and a 16-year-old boy were killed. Carmen Best, the Seattle chief of police during that time says, two African-American men are dead at a place where they claim to be working for Black Lives Matter. But they're gone. They're dead now. These people, in the name of life, committed acts of violence that came around and killed the people that they were standing up for. Another example, on January 6th of this year, there was a large gathering in Washington, D.C. to protest the election. Again, many peaceful people were there, but many hundreds broke off from that crowd and stormed the Capitol building. You all saw the footage. You, you saw the pictures, the video. Many people in that crowd were flying the thin blue line flag, the blue lives matter, the we support the police banner. And what happened? 140 officers were injured and one died. 
Officer Michael Fanone said, I got grabbed by rioters, kind of pulled out from the threshold, separated from the other officers. I'm now assaulted from all sides. I was struck with a taser a number of times. I guess there was a black and white photo that was taken. Ironically, I was being beaten with a thin blue line flag. Ironically. When you perpetrate acts of violence, they have a tendency to turn around back on you. And we know this is true. There's significant psychological research. And if anybody knows a veteran who has gone to combat, there's mounds of evidence that killing people harms the people doing the killing. It hurts us. It scars us. In executions, um, sometimes people are executed by firing squad. Uh, fun fact, the last firing squad execution in the United States was in 2010. Historically, in firing squads, they distribute the weapons to the executioners without them knowing anything about the guns. And one of the guns has a blank cartridge in it. Nobody knows which one it is. But the reason they put this blank cartridge in that gun, it's called the bullet of conscience, so that everyone can think, maybe my gun didn't have a bullet in it. Maybe my gun isn't responsible for killing someone. Because committing acts of violence hurts the people doing the violence. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. But Christians, I believe, should forsake violence because God will avenge us. Look at verse 53. Jesus says, or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it might happen this way? Jesus said, if I wanted to fight right now, I could call on God and he would send 12 legions of angels. That's a military term, it's about 72,000 angels. That's a lot. One angel, if you read through uh, examples of what angels can do, they can do a lot of damage. 72,000 angels, that's a big show of force. But it makes us ask a question that Jesus answer, how should war be waged? By supernatural forces. When we are mistreated, we pray, we seek the Lord, we ask him to intervene on our behalf. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. This mob that has approached Jesus, they are inspired, they are, in, they are animated by the powers of darkness. And as Christians, we recognize we are at war. We have enemies who hate us. But those enemies, they aren't people. And it's not that we aren't concerned with justice. It's that we trust that God is going to dispense justice. Listen to Paul again in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. 
But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Paul says we don't have to fight for our rights, our freedoms, our safety, because God is that. But I, I want to be clear when I say fight, what I believe Scripture teaches is that we are called to not kill people. It points us back to what Paul said just a second ago, that we would heap fiery coals on our enemy's head. What does that mean? Heap fiery coals. I think it leads us to the third thing we learn in this passage from Jesus in verse 55. Jesus says, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. Jesus is mocking his enemies. He's making fun of their cowardice. Because I think as Christians, we should forsake violence because we shame our enemies through peace. That's what to heap fiery coals means. Jesus is calling his enemies out and shaming them for their conduct. And this is important because nonviolence for the Christian is not the same as pacifism. If pacifism is, is failing to stand up against injustice, we're not loving our neighbors. We aren't loving either the ones being harmed or the ones doing the harming by doing nothing. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was at a rally where he, and at the rally he learned that his house had just been bombed. His wife and two-month-old daughter were home. He came home and thankfully found his family unharmed, but there's an angry mob of African Americans outside of his house mixed with white police officers, and things are getting tense. Violence was in the air. King scrambled up to the front of his burnt-out porch, and he calmed the crowd. And at the end of the night, they all ended up singing Amazing Grace together. After that time, listen to what King said. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory." Jesus, in this example in Matthew, is confronting the crowd, not with violence, but by shaming them for their unjust conduct. I've been, I've been teaching out in the open all week. You know exactly what I'm teaching. You know exactly what I've been doing. And you don't come and arrest me in public. 
You organize a mob. You come under the, sh- the, the cover of night. You come at me with weapons like I'm some kind of terrorist. Shame on you. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus gives two, three, sorry, three examples of oppression here. The first one, turn the other cheek. We're all familiar with this. this we, we tend to think that this means let people do whatever they want to you. But that's not what Jesus is teaching, and it's, it's brilliant. I love this. Because in the ancient world, everyone was right-handed, there was this weird superstition against left-handed people. And it, it carried on even to a couple generations ago in our country. Many of you maybe know people whose left hands were tied to their school desks so that they were forced to write with their right hand. I'm a lefty, and that sounds terrifying. But there's this stigma against left-handedness. And so everyone in the ancient world would have assumed right-handedness. So if you're standing across from someone, and they hit you on the right cheek... The only way they're going to accomplish that by striking you with the back of their right hand. And to be struck with the back of someone's right hand was a symbolic act that they were better than you. You, as a a free Roman man, would slap a slave. You would slap a woman. You would slap a child because they were all your inferiors but you would never slap your equal. It would be a huge sign of disrespect. And Jesus says, when someone disrespects you by slapping you across the other cheek, your response should be to turn the other cheek to them, to say, if you are gonna do an act of violence against me, you get to slap, you get to punch me on my left cheek like an equal, because I am your equal. He says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give him your coat too. If you're being sued for your shirt, it means you don't have anything else. You're an incredibly poor individual. The person that is taking you to the courts to take your shirt to you is doing you a profound injustice. And Jesus says, if they don't see how unjust it is to take the shirt off your back, you should give them your coat too. The Old Testament law says you cannot take a man's coat as um, assurance for a loan unless you give it back to him before nightfall because it's the only thing he has to keep himself warm. And so for the Christian to say, hey, you know what? Here's my coat too. And to strip naked in front of the court exposes the injustice of the one who would take the shirt off your back. Thirdly, and I think my favorite, is go the extra mile. There's a law in Roman society that if a Roman soldier taps you on the shoulder, they can force you to carry their luggage for a mile. It's, a, it's against the law to refuse them. 
And so as an oppressor, the Roman army had subjugated the Jewish people, had oppressed them, had taxed them, had killed them. This soldier, this representative of this regime says, hey, I want you to carry my stuff. You have to do it. But at the end of one mile, it's illegal for the Roman soldier to make you carry it another one. He has to take it back or he could get in trouble. So imagine the conversation when the mile is up and you're like, no, man, I'm good. I got this. Let's go another mile. What's going to happen if somebody finds out? I'm not, I'm not making you carry it another mile. I don't want to get in trouble. No, no, I got this. How does the power dynamic change in that situation? Once the oppressor who's forcing you to carry his stuff is now afraid that he could get in trouble, and now you're the one in power. You're saying, you know, I got this. I'm going to carry this. I'm going to do you good. And for another mile, you get to talk to that guy about Jesus. This is why I am who I am. This is why I love people that don't love me back. See, Jesus' commands against violence are subversive. And to shame the oppressor and get them to change their mind. And this isn't just some fanciful fictional world that Jesus is living in. It's actually how he expects his people to operate in the real world. But then look at verse 56. But all this happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him, and ran away. I think it's interesting here. Peter is brave because he has a sword in his hand. He's going to fight the enemy. He's going to go after the Romans. He's going to try to kill the high priest's servant. But as soon as Jesus changes the dynamic of the situation, says, no, Peter, we're not going to act that way. We're going to subversively shame our opponents with our peaceful response Where does the disciples' bravery go? Completely out the window. They are unable to be courageous when the call is to be nonviolent, and they run away. This is a short passage, but it's an illustration of what I believe Jesus calls us to be about. But what do we do with this? If you're like me, this subject makes you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable because I am a product of American culture. American culture literally built on the idea of using violence to secure your rights. Um, uh, Joanna and I were going, running some errands yesterday and we went past Davis Donuts, a donut shop, super American. Davis Donuts, super North Idaho staple. They've got the reader board with the cool quotes. The quote is from Rush Limbaugh. You know why there's a second amendment? In case the government fails to follow the first one. And he's right. You read, you read our founding documents, you read the Federalist Papers, the views of our founding fathers. That's what it's there for. If you take my rights away, I will kill you. That's the, that's the basis of our system of government. And so to hear, you know, Jesus saying, you know, that's really not how Christians should behave. Christians are called to peace. I immediately go, well, I don't know. That sounds odd to me. That doesn't jive with the world that I live in. 
I saw this tweet this week from Pastor Rich Velotas. He, he wrote, when engaging in polarizing issues, the follower of Jesus would do well to ask, am I uneasy with this perspective because it runs contrary to Jesus' life and message? Or am I uneasy with this perspective because it challenges the long-held assumptions I've carried? I think that's a good question. Are we people that see violence as the right response to violence because that's what Jesus teaches us to do? Or is it because of the world that we grew up in? This is a, a deep subject. It's a, it's a heavy subject. And, and before we close this morning, I want to I wanna throw out a couple objections to the idea of not retaliating by killing our enemies. I want to give you two from Scripture, and I want to give you two from kind of situational ethics. Because maybe some of you are thinking this. The first one is, what, what, about, what about the Israelites? In the Old Testament, they're commanded to go to war and kill their enemies, right? We read the Old Testament, we see that. The first thing you could say is, well, Jesus tends to kind of change things when he shows up. If you read the Sermon on the Mount again, he says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, this. And so anything that we see in the Old Testament should be instructive, but it has to be looked at through the lens of Jesus. But even so, I want to read you an example of God specifically entering into the military tactics of the people of Israel. This is from Judges chapter 7. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water and I will test them there for you. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and handed the Midianites over to you. Everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their ram's horns. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. See, God has something to say about Gideon's military tactics. And what he says is, you know what? You're too strong. You have too much firepower. We need to roll that back a little bit so that you don't get cocky. So you recognize that I'm the one that delivers you. And that's not without precedent. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses is writing about the king that will come in the future. He says, however, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. Egypt is the military power of the day. Their military might is unparalleled. And Moses says, when you have a king, He's not to go back there and engage in the arms deals of the Egyptians. Horses and chariots are like tanks. You're not supposed to be well-armed, Israel. 
Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. Some of your translations might say, we tr- some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, even though there is violence being perpetrated against God's enemies by God's people, the continual thread is God is your deliverer, not your own military might. So then, interesting side note, here's, here's a chart of military spending by country for 2019. This, this bar here, you can't read it from the back, but it says $732 billion. That's the United States. All those there, that's the next highest 10 countries in the world. And it only adds up to $726 billion. We spend more money on our military in this country than the next highest 10 countries combined. What are we trusting in? The power of our weapons. Now, I don't really believe that America is a nation founded and led by God like Israel was. I believe that we're just a nation like any other, and I don't really expect us to have godly values in the way we spend money. But it's interesting that this is the country that we live in, and these are the values that we share. One more scriptural objection. Isn't there a verse somewhere where Jesus says, you're supposed to have a sword? Anybody thinking that? Luke 22 He also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then they said to them, then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. He was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. So, there's a verse, Jesus says you should have a sword, so of course that means that we should be willing to commit acts of violence to defend ourselves. But I don't really think that's what's going on here. Look at why Jesus says they should have a sword. For I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet says hundreds of years before Jesus is born that when the Messiah comes, he will be considered a criminal. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew, you guys come out with swords and clubs like I'm a criminal. Part of the trumped up charges against Jesus is that he is an, he's an insurrectionist. This is how they get Rome to crucify him. He is, he is a rebel against Roman authority. What I think is happening here is Jesus is making sure that there's a way for those charges to be brought. He knows that that's the way it's supposed to happen, and he knows that if his guys have weapons on them, those charges will be part of the case. If you continue to look at that passage, he says, Remember when I sent you out and I told you to not carry anything with you? He sent them out two by two, right, in pairs, all around the country to proclaim the gospel. Now he seems to be saying, I'm going to do that again, but it's going to be longer and you need to be prepared. So if you send the disciples out two by two and they need swords to defend themselves and the disciples go, look, we've got two swords. 
And, and Jesus says, oh man, that's a start, but you should probably get about 10 more. He doesn't say that. He says, yeah, that's enough. How is that enough? If the disciples are intending to defend themselves with weapons on their journeys, how is two swords enough? See, I don't think Jesus is commanding us to be violent here. I think he's setting up a fulfillment to a prophecy in Isaiah. Those are two biblical objections. There are more. We don't have time for more. But what about, what about just situations? What about it saying, like, isn't, our, isn't it our duty to violently oppose injustice around the world? What about all those terrorist regimes and people being oppressed? And shouldn't we go after the bad guys? If the opposite of violence is doing nothing, then yeah, we're not loving our neighbors. Passivity in the face of oppression is disobedience. If you see somebody being mugged and you're just like, well, I'm a Christian, I don't do anything about that. No, you're, you're not loving your neighbor. But remember, Jesus teaches us that nonviolent resistance shames those that oppress us. Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan in their book, Why Civil Resistance Works, surveyed 326 campuses worldwide against oppression from the year 1900 to 2006. Over 100 years, groups of people fighting against oppression. Some of them fought violently, and some of them fought nonviolently. And their research shows that nonviolent resistance is more than twice as effective as violent resistance. We just assume that violence is the best way to bring about freedom but it's objectively not. Last one, what about when somebody breaks into your house to murder your family? I think this is a really interesting one because I hear it a lot and there's so many assumptions built into it, aren't there? It's the middle of the night, there's a crazed drug fiend with a gun and he's, he's just, he just picked a house at random and he's going to go in and he's going to kill everybody. That's a possibility, I guess. It's honestly not very likely. But here's some questions. Like, if somebody breaks into your house, are they even armed? Do they have a weapon? Are they there to harm you or are they just there to steal your TV? Is killing them the only option? I read a story this week of, of a lady who actually experienced an armed intruder who was intent on doing violence against her family. And she said, okay, okay, you can kill us, but I want to make you a cup of coffee first. And the intruder was like, okay. And, and by the time that he drank the coffee, he wasn't interested in doing violence anymore. Now, is that a, a strange set of circumstances? Sure. But the very fact that, that we would be arming ourselves against this hypothetical intruder that's most likely never going to come is also a strange circumstance. But even, even if violence is less effective than nonviolence, we're not called to be effective. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful to Jesus. There was a man who attended our church for a little while he, him and his wife decided it wasn't for them. 
I think one of the straws that broke the camel's back for him is he came to church one morning and met me in the foyer and he was holding a Glock pistol and he said, do you mind if I just set this in the pew next to me on top of my Bible? And since he asked, I said, yes, I do mind. I want you to put it near your car. And he said, well, he's mad. And he said, I won't have time to go get it if I need it. Not, not going to unpack all of the things involved with that, but the idea was if somebody bar, bar, barges through this door in the middle of our church service with a gun intending to kill Christians, and one of us, Christians, has a gun, maybe some of you are concealed carrying right now, I don't know, I'm not going to, nobody's going to like patch it down. But say one of us stands up and we shoot the intruder and we kill him. He will immediately enter the presence of a holy and just God. And he will be judged for his sin, rightly. And he will be condemned to death and hell. But if an intruder comes in, which is, and there are many stories of this happening, and the Christians in the room engage him. Maybe they try to disarm him nonviolently. Maybe they just talk to him. Maybe they say, hey, man, what do you need? Is there something we can do to help? You know, Jesus loves you. Maybe that intruder will have second thoughts. Maybe that intruder will get a f- couple of bullets off, and maybe, maybe I will die. And I will immediately go into the presence of a just and holy God. But because my sins have been covered by Jesus, I will enter in to the beauty and glory of the kingdom and experience joy forevermore. And maybe, just maybe, that intruder with the gun will recognize that the people in the room loved him and valued his life more than they valued their own. And maybe he might have a change of heart and come to understand the beauty of the gospel and ask Jesus to forgive him from all of his sins, just like we've been forgiven of our sins. And then someday he would join us in the kingdom. So we ask the question, how could we die for our enemies? How is that even a a thing? Well, Jesus did. Jesus let me kill him. Right? Jesus let you and your sin put him on the cross. Jesus allowed his enemies to kill him so that we would be shamed and turn from our wickedness and turn from our sin, that we would realize that his nonviolent resistance to wicked men is the thing that brings us wholeness and life. As we wrap up, this is a really hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing. I struggle to teach it. I struggle to walk in it. I don't know what to do about it because it's so ingrained in our culture to do something different. 
But I believe that this is what Scripture teaches about how we should respond to our enemies. It's what the early church believed. If you've ever read the the stories of the martyrs, hundreds and thousands of Christians willing to die for their enemies because of the love of Christ that was in them. It's what much of the African-American church believed during the civil rights movement and still believes. It's what churches around the world today that are being persecuted for their faith believe. But it's hard because we get a completely different message everywhere we turn. Before we take communion, I want to leave you with a couple resources. There's a couple books that I want to recommend. The first one is Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence. Um, It's in our library if you're interested. It's really good. It talks about all of the scriptural issues. It talks about church history. It answers all of those objections, even the ones that I didn't mention. The second one is called Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence by Shane Claiborne. Um, It's not an anti-gun owner book. It's an anti-gun violence book. So I know a lot of us are gun owners for various reasons, and that's not the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is um, people kill people, and people with guns tend to kill a lot of people in this country. And it's, it's, a really, uh, it's been a really helpful read for me to understand modern violence. And if you're more of a podcast person, uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland, if you're familiar with John Mark Comer, it's his church. Um, they were going through the Sermon on the Mount a couple years ago, and they took six weeks to interview different people with a variety of perspectives on Jesus' teaching on nonviolence. They're all very good episodes of, um, from different perspectives. If you're, if you're at a place where you're, you're not really sure about this, I would encourage you Give it some space in your heart. Give it some time. Let the Spirit of God teach you. Get in the Word. See what what Jesus' way of life really looks like and see your understanding of life is in conflict with it. Because mine is. The way I want to live my life is in conflict with what Jesus teaches me to be. Ultimately, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Jesus refused to fight for his rights and instead allowed himself to be harmed by his enemies for his enemies. And remember, that's us. We were his enemies. He let his body be broken and he let his blood be shed so that we could be made into God's children. And Jesus' death followed by Jesus' resurrection, which leads to our resurrection. Because of that, we know that we have no fear, harm from people because our lives are tied up in His. So as we we take communion this morning, a couple things I want to focus on. First, the, the bread and the cup are representative of the fact that Jesus didn't fight back. And as we take the bread and the cup into our bodies, we are identifying with Christ. We are saying, he is my king, he is my Lord, I follow him. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to the paintings in front uh, that Cassie did. Uh, if, if If you haven't been here, we asked 
some of the artists in our community to um, meditate on the idea of the communion meal and come up with some art to celebrate for this Lent season. And this is Cassie's contribution. Um, as, as you look at the pieces, she's picked out a, a piece of music that she found inspiration in. So we're going to listen to that as the band comes up. Then we're going to sing. So take a few minutes. Think through what Jesus has done for you who were once his enemy and what impact that has on us and how we relate to our own enemies. Come take communion and think through the death and the resurrection of Christ and how his death leads to your life. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.